0: The transmitter.
1: Welcome to episode nine of Synaptic. This is our podcast that investigates the people, the research, and the challenges of the neuroscience field. My name is Brady Huggett, and I'm the host of this show. Welcome aboard. You are listening to this on January 1st or later, so happy 2024. I hope your New Year's Eve was festive, or wild, or peaceful or whatever you wanted it to be. Okay, for today's show, let's go back to 1911 and let's go to Eunice, Louisiana. Now that year, an aging, faded high school in Eunice was bought by the Congregation of the Roman Catholics of St. Anthony of Padua Church, with the idea of turning it into a Catholic school. The old school was physically moved to a plot of land behind the local Catholic church, and the congregation also bought a nearby two-story building, which it hoped would eventually house six nuns to help oversee the school. And in fact, in late August of that year, a small group of Maronite nuns got off the train in Eunice and were ushered to their new residence close to the school and the church. And in September of that year, the school, under the name of St. Paul's, opened its doors to 112 students. The school name was changed to St. Edmund by 1921. And over the coming decades, it provided hundreds of students with both an education and heavy doses of Catholicism under the watchful eyes of the nuns. Now, among those students was Joseph Ledoux, who began his schooling there around 1955, I'd guess. That's today's guest, by the way, Joe Ledoux. Joe was a nice boy, polite and quiet, and the nuns loved him. And partially because of that, he thought he might one day want to become a priest. But when Joe was in the seventh grade, a traveling magic show arrived in Eunice. Of course, this got the attention of the kids, Joe included. But the nuns told the students they were forbidden from attending the show because that kind of thing, they said, was the devil's work. Well, Joe went anyway. And he was punished by the nuns for this, along with any classmates who admitted to visiting the magic show. And that, he says, is when he took a hard look at these nuns and what they were selling. Because he was old enough to know by then that there was no devil's work in a magic show. It was just fun. He'd had fun there. And at that point, he stopped thinking he might one day become a priest, and he decided he wanted to go to a public high school, which he did. And that led him eventually to college, where he brushed up against psychology, and his life was changed forever. We talked about that on this podcast. And we talked about how after undergrad, he got into Stony Brook for graduate school and was turned down everywhere else he applied. And we talked about how he sometimes felt like an imposter in the neuroscience field, studying the brain. All of that coming up in the next hour. I met with Joe on November 2nd, 2023, at his apartment in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, here in New York City. A sunny but chilly day, the temperature in the high 40s. Very easy interview for me to get to, just a subway ride over the East River. He lives in an apartment near the riverfront, and in his apartment he has outfitted a small workspace. The room is filled with books and guitars and recording equipment and his computer, everything that he needs to fill a day. So that made it a little cramped for us. There was no common table we could use, but we used an overturned cardboard box for my recorder and mic, and Joe hung his mic from a mic stand angled down toward his mouth and we got underway. It was a nice talk, I thought. He had a lot to say about Louisiana and a lot to say about how the brain works too. So let's pick it up here where we're just finishing up chatting about Williamsburg and the massive gentrification it has undergone in the past 15 years. So this is episode nine of Synaptic with guest Joseph Ledoux starting right now. It's oh, like really young people everywhere, right? The yeah. whole whole thing has changed. Um, okay, so l- let's get down to it. Okay. So I, you've been in New York State a long time. I know that. Uh, 1974. Okay, and before that though, I think you're from Louisiana. Correct. So where wh- where did you grow up? Eunice, Louisiana,
2: uh, the heart of Cajun country, one of the focal points of Cajun music.
1: Uh uh-huh. huh. How is it that your family? was there was there family history that had you your family um, in Louisiana
2: well you know it was there was of course the migration from uh, Nova Scotia uh-huh. a lot of french speaking people moved there moved to Louisiana when the british uh, took over Nova Scotia from uh, from france and then <clears throat> there were a bunch of immigrants from france and from other european countries for example my father's parents we both French, uh, probably from either directly from Canada or from probably Brittany in France. Uh-huh. Um, my mother's family was her father's uh, side was uh, German and her mother's side was Sicilian, but they had been in in Louisiana for several generations, so they spoke French. And, you know. Oh, they did. Yeah, yeah, once once you're there, you're and uh, built into the culture. Yeah. And you just learned to speak the language, and you're just another Cajun.
1: Did you speak French growing up?
2: No, I was, uh, my generation was the last generation to not really learn French. It was, uh, yeah, I was born in 49, post World War II. Everybody was rah rah America. Yeah. solve the problems of the world, and they wanted us to be Americans, not uh, Cajun French
1: people. Oh, so there was almost like, let's not talk, let's not speak French right. anymore. Until, yeah.
2: them, like, you know, maybe when I was 10 or 12, they tried to. Get me to start speaking it and it was impossible. Too
1: late. Know, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you know how your parents met?
2: Uh, yeah, I do. So <clears throat> my father had been, uh, he had a, uh, what do you call it, a, defer- a deferment from World War II because he had a daughter uh, and he was married uh, to a woman. They lived in southwest Louisiana near uh-huh. Lake Charles down by the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and they got divorced at some point. Um, but and so he, well, it's a longer story. Let me back up a bit. So, in the, in the Depression, my father was um, a young man, teenager, and he took off with the rodeo because there was nothing else to do. Yeah. So like he a, rode like a traveling rodeo. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So he rode Bulls in Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, all 17 different states, I think. Wow. Um, and I have a, a little book here. Yeah. Oops. I uh, don't know where it is. It's right up there called Cowboy Cowboy Tales that he narrated, uh, and we turned it into a little pamphlet. My wife sort of...
1: Like stories of his life.
2: Yeah. Uh, It's kind of interesting. But anyway, so he was in the rodeo, uh, fell off a bull and hurt his back at some point, so he came back to Eunice and took over his father's meat market. And so on Saturday nights, he would go to um, uh, the... I forget what the the club was called, but it was a nightclub out in the countryside. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, where they had big bands playing and so forth, or at least uh, big band music. Sometimes they had Harry James or someone like that that would come in touring. And he uh, saw this lady, young lady, from Elton, Louisiana, who'd go there to to dance, you know, because everybody wanted to hook up because the war was over and Uh and they tried to, like, mate up and get going. And so even though he'd been married before he was divorced and he was dancing with my mother, my to-be mother, and um, after the dance, he asked her to get married.
1: After the dance? Yeah. <laughs> you mean, I mean, after, the first, after yeah. the first dance. After the first dance.
2: And, you know, she, he was this kind of rugged uh, character. Bull rider, yeah. Bull yeah. rider, not the kind of guy she was really looking for. She was looking for some kind of ex-marine that would go into business or something. Um, so she said no. And, but every week he would show up again and say until finally he got her to say yes. And then they got married. Uh, I don't know exactly what year that was. I think probably forty-eight, and I was
1: born in forty-nine. Did you ever have you ever asked him about that? I mean, just the concept of one dance, and you're like, "I want to marry you." <laughs> That's
2: just how he was. I mean, he was a real character.
1: He uh, was like straight ahead. This is what I want. I'm going right. to do it. And wow. he
2: probably did it sort of as a
1: joke at first, but then yeah. he began to believe the joke. And <laughs> <laughs> it was serious. Okay, he convinces her. Yeah. They got married. How much? How, how much longer after that?
2: You know, I don't, again, I don't know the gory details, but, uh, you know, I guess it's possible that uh, she was pregnant with me because uh-huh. it wasn't a lot of years involved, but maybe not. Maybe they just got married and got pregnant, but yeah. uh, hard to know. And then, you know, she took over sort of being the face of the meat market, kind of took over the books and would smile to the customers and stuff. And uh, I thought they'd be cutting the meat and there'd be a staff in the back, three or four guys. They'd always come in the next day drunk after you know, doing too much, having too much fun the night before. Yeah. Often he would have to go drive through the neighborhood, find them, get them out of bed, shake the woman away that they had picked up, and drag him into the meat market to work. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's his, that was
1: his job, to do yeah. that. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, but he also cut meat. He was, yeah. uh, he was yeah. a skilled butcher. And um, so those guys were interesting to me. I mean, I'd hang out with them in the back and I had to learn how to do things. And My job as a, a kid was, this is, I've told the story a million times, but it was to pull the bullets out of the brain because uh, they were selling the brains as a delicacy. People uh-huh. would eat brains back then. So I had to like reach in and find where, you could see that there was a wound where the bullet had gone in, kind of a blood clot. Yeah. So you could kind of separate that and dig the bullet out and uh, throw it away. And then they would use the, the meat the, uh, the brains were selling.
0: But
1: who was doing the slaughtering? Uh, okay,
2: so we had a <clears throat> a farm three miles out in the country, and so the uh, my father's name was Boo Boo Ladu. He would go to the, the cattle auction in Opelousas, which is about 20 miles um, east, and buy a few you know calves, calves, and uh, uh, bring them back in the truck. And they would stay at the slaughterhouse. Then their their day would come when they yeah. were put down.
1: And oh, so he'd buy the calves. They would be raised at the slaughterhouse, yep. and then well, they
2: would, they would they would be ready to slaughter. Oh, they would pretty much. Okay. And okay. they were they were not baby calves. They yeah. were kind of, but they I guess they called them calves, but they were kind of adolescents, I right. guess you would say. Right. Uh, yeah. And so then, at the slaughterhouse, they would um, of course kill the animal. I mean, that you know, it's, there was a bullet that was used, but that was a stun gun basically. that's a twenty two rifle. And so that would go in the head and and knock the animal out. But the I don't know how gory. We want to get into all the details, but you know that the the death came by yeah. releasing the blood. I mean, this is this
1: is body. still the way they do it. Yeah. They stun the animal first okay. and then slit the throat. Okay, so then that meat would come to you, but the bullet was still in the brain. Right. It will come to the meat shop, and your job was to get the bullet out.
2: Yeah. So I, they they would skin the cow, the uh, cow as well, cut it in half, so you have uh, you know two halves uh, hanging on a. A rock yep. that could move around. And then they would throw those in the back of a pickup truck and drive it in. So th- th- that's an interesting thing that I, I've actually written about. I written, wrote a blog about this, I think, for the Huffington Post about years ago about how, <clears throat> you know, okay, you got a, a couple of uh, cows that have been, you know, skinned, cleaned, cut in half, thrown in the back of a pickup truck, driven into town with the tarp on top of it, flies everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but nobody got sick and yeah, so why so this was a a very well contained community there weren't a lot of people coming in and out from the outside, so the microbiota microbiota of the community um was i think stable enough that whatever the bac- the common bacteria were, whether it was going to get into the cow or into the person was uh you know familiar enough to the uh the, the immune system to detect all that and, and not cause big problems. Hmm. I mean, that's just my theory, but I, I don't know if it's true. Yeah,
1: I mean, that would never pass muster today. Did you have, do you have any siblings? But you, you have one half. I had, I well,
2: she was a, a half-sister. Yeah. And we never lived together, but we were pretty
1: close over the years. So you're, your mother and father only had one child. That right. was you. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So a, as you're growing up, um, well, it sounds like, number one, there was always an interest in music in your family.
2: The family was not... I mean, my mother could keep a beat. My father couldn't. I kind of got... My beat is somewhere between there. <laughs> <laughs> you could keep a little bit of a beat. <laughs> but uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of music in my family, but everywhere in town. You know, yeah. if, if you were an old man, you probably played in some kind of Cajun band, mm-hmm. and, you know, because it, just was, it was just so
1: popular there. Uh, so as you're growing up, though, I, did you have any interest in, in science at all?
2: None. None no, around. I mean you know some every now and then I'd say I'm going to build a little radio or something, but never got anywhere with it. No, well, I was you know it was just uh wasn't there wasn't a lot of there weren't role models to it wasn't around no one yeah. to help me do that kind of thing. Yeah, and I I just really wasn't that interested in it. Uh, wasn't that interested in school either. I was um, I was kind of a shy kid, and um, my first day in kindergarten. Uh, I was the youngest kid in the class too, because of December birthday. Uh-huh. so my first day, I was whipped with a uh, electrical wire in the playground, and from that point on, I just was silent that kind of like you know who whipped you this t- I know kid I mean was it a
1: teacher or a kid? <laughs> no a kid I was a kid <laughs> and, um, he was carrying around an electrical cord
2: no, I just was lying around oh, in the man. weeds, you know. But it, it really kind of inhibited me. I was nervous enough about, you know, none, didn't know these kids. Because, yeah. um, you know, when I grew up, uh, I, I was playing with black kids all the time because the meat market was on the edge of the um, colored part of yeah. town. Yeah, yeah. And so those were my friends. Um, and they called me White Joe. Yeah. Because there was another guy who was Joe. He wasn't yeah. Black Joe, but I was White Joe. Yeah. And they kind of would treat me as the boss of the, the, the you know, the gang. Yeah. Uh, Because I had the toys and stuff, you know. And, but when I went to school, all of a sudden I was totally the lowest man on the totem pole because I got whipped that way. Yeah. And so there were years where I would, you know, my, um, I think the way kids knew me was I was the quiet one that, would never talk when the teacher would leave the room or anything like that and I started making rosaries um, with the nuns after school and uh, I was their favorite little thing they thought I was perfect because I never cut up or anything right um, and I you know I was really into Catholicism they were pushing me to like become a priest and to get set up you know because as a young boy you can be moved into that track.
1: Yeah, like that might be a career for you would yeah, be a priest, <laughs> right?
2: And I was really into it for a while. I thought, you know, okay. I didn't know anything better, so that seemed like fun. I would, you know, after school, I'd go put on my mother's negligee and stuff and dress up like a, a <laughs> priest. <laughs> the whole mass in, the, uh, in, the, in their bedroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they freaked out. So by the time... Oh, and then I guess one thing, one crucial thing that happened was there was a horror show thing, kind of a, a traveling magic show that went through town, and I was getting a little older now, maybe sixth or seventh grade, maybe seventh grade, um, and the nuns forbade us yeah. from going to this magic show because it was the devil's work, and, you know, I just didn't see it, and I said, well, it, it wouldn't stop me from going, I'm their little pet, you know? Right. But... The next day they called out all those that went to the show and we had to stand out and we got all suspended and how'd uh, they know well i guess it was the honor system or maybe that was a, somebody was telling who went oh they
1: <laughs> said who who went to the show yeah. and you said i did
2: yeah uh-huh and so it it sort of just turned my uh head a little bit about the nuns and what they were after and it, it was ridiculous there was no you know devil worship in that thing it was just fun yeah um And then the other thing that happened is, of course, hormones kicked in and figured out that those girls were, you know, real. There was something to that. Yeah, (laughs) and uh, you know, had a girlfriend or something at at some point, and um, decided that you know, the priest thing was no more. That was not the
1: life for you. Yeah.
2: So at that point, I decided I wanted to go to, to high school at the public school rather than the Catholic school, and. You know, then they freaked out about that. They wanted me to stay at the Catholic school. Your parents or the yeah, nuns? Friends, the cat-
1: uh, my parents. Your, pa- your parents are Catholic too. Yeah yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. They, I mean, at first they were pushing me to go to the the uh, high school because to get me out of the, the priest thing. But once yeah. I did it, they wanted me to stay back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was a complicated time. But anyway, yeah. So i you know, discovered girls and and um, folk music came at some point. Everybody got a folk guitar. Um, I remember at a party at a kind of uh, very rich family's outdoor kitchen. Everybody in the South has an outdoor kitchen. Um, the the older fella in this uh, family took his acoustic guitar... Or everybody had a gun, too. Somewhere. <laughs> took his acoustic guitar sh- and shot holes through it. And as as part of his performance? Just, as, just for fun, yeah. like drinking too much uh-huh. and shooting guitars. <laughs> but anyway, I had an acoustic guitar... I uh, tried to play Sounds of Silence and other things like that. Uh, and then I'll, when I would play, the girls would come. Yep. So I said, oh, okay. So I tried to learn how to play. and uh, Then, of course, the Beatles came on to Ed Sullivan, and that changed everything, threw the acoustic guitars away, bought electric guitars. This amp here, I bought it in 1963. Oh, really? Oh, Fender my God. Vendor Deluxe. Uh, that's the guitar I had, my first guitar. This one right here. Yep, yep. Sears and Robot. Wow,
1: man. (laughs) You were in some bands in high school, too. Yeah,
2: Yeah, we had a couple of bands. uh, I I can't remember the first one, but the second was called The Countdowns. The Deadbeats. Oh, The Deadbeats,
0: I think. Right. Yeah. But those
2: sounded like (laughs) punk bands to me. Uh, Well, yeah, but all we knew was like, how to. well, we weren't good enough to uh, play like uh, The Beatles. There was another band that could. Um, but we could do the stones, so we could do like, ah. simple
1: blues things. Okay, so you were actually, you know, you were were you playing shows around town? I that, mean, that, I mean, that, it could be that, like in a bar. So I get it. But.
2: Yeah, we were like we played, uh, at, you know, a couple of things here and there. Probably we were together for two years. We probably had two shows.
0: <laughs> okay, but <laughs> well, we right. practiced a lot. Yeah, you practiced a lot. <laughs> you thought about the shows.
1: Um, I feel like this. Probably some expectation that you might take over your father's business yeah. or the butcher, your right. family's business. Right. Was that was that the idea?
2: That was kind of the idea at some point. Um, <clears throat> in high school, in addition to, I'll get to the, the other point, but in addition to to having a band, I was a disc jockey on the local radio station um, in my senior year, and one of my highlight moments of life was, uh, you know, radio stations would. Arrange for bands or groups to come through town and play at the National Guard Armory. And <coughs> the one of the uh, performers was Percy Sledge, whose mm. big hit was When a Man Loves a Woman. Mm-hmm. So I was backstage with Percy, it's feeling really cool. So he's about to walk out and he hands me his pint of uh, whiskey out of his back pocket. says, Have a sip. So I got to drink out of Percy Sledge's uh, bottle just as he went out and played. That's and that pretty mean. When a Man Loves a Woman. Yeah, that yeah. was one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, Louisiana is kind of a wild place. You could drive up to um, liquor store windows, drive-in windows, as a fifteen-year-old in a car because you had a driver's license at fifteen, and order like a highball, uh, you know, whiskey on the rocks or something, and drive off with that in a cup. Adults could do that too. But it's just, that was how. It's that, funny. Like so, went.
1: you weren't. Were you allowed in a bar at fifteen? No. Yeah. Oh, you were. And they, you know, they didn't. I mean, you weren't supposed to be allowed. Yeah. But, yeah. But there were bars you could go to. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you can drive up to a package store today and buy booze itself, but, right. but they were in handing you one to a drink. glass and drive away, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. And that, you know, it, Louisiana is so lawless. Um, there's a, there were, um, nope, there were no uh, counties. There were just parishes, right? Yeah. So, the, sh- and each parish had a sheriff to kind of keep things under control. The sheriff of um, uh, St. Landry Parish was named Cat Doucette because uh, he ran the Cat Houses. <laughs>
1: That's a great name. Yeah.
2: Anyway, so yeah, they, I uh, went to college. The, the year I was supposed to go to college, L S U E, the junior college, uh, opened up in Newness. And my mother was begging me to go there because it was cheaper and closer yeah and closer and she just didn't want me to go to LSU because she saw where I was headed as a teenager is getting a little wilder and you know just doing things she wasn't happy about so she really wanted me to stay there but I said no I have to go to Baton Rouge you know it's just
1: but this I mean from what you've told me the wilder Joe do is just maybe getting a cocktail and playing in bands. You weren't like a,
2: well, I don't know. Yeah, no, I wasn't doing anything.
1: Lifting cars or no, no, nothing that like that. But
2: compared to where I started, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> back when you were going to be a priest, this is a big change. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and, um, they, uh, there was one incident that, um, there was a, uh, some event near Lake Charles, Louisiana football game or something. And, um, Everybody went on the bus, but I drove my car and my parents didn't know that I was doing that. And, but somebody saw me in the car and told my parents, and so they were you know, pissed Angry. off about yeah. that. Yeah. So that, that's about as wild as it Okay. <laughs>
1: All right. So she wanted you a little closer. She <laughs> wanted me closer. But you, you wanted to go to LSU.
2: Um, but we, we came up with an agreement that um, I would come back to Eunice and be a banker Let's go study business at LSU and be a banker and come back to Eunice. And,
1: did you like that plan?
2: I knew it was never going to come to pass, so I. I but was, you agreed to it. I agreed to it. <laughs>
1: okay. All right. So when you did go to LSU, what were you thinking about? If you knew you weren't coming back to be a banker, what were you planning on getting? I out wasn't of the thinking about
2: anything. You know, I was thinking about being in a fraternity and going yeah. to parties and yeah. having a good time. I, uh, um, I think I had a like a D average first semester.
1: Because you were partying and not I paying doing, attention yeah, I wasn't doing much yeah. in
2: studying um and that didn't go over very well at home uh maybe I got it up to a C the second semester um uh but it, you know I was not a great student I was studying business and it wasn't very hard you know you could kind of quickly read the night before stay up all night and get read. a D there was a, a doctor in the uh, in, in the uh student infirmary that was giving out um Dexedrine to uh, students that would go in and say they wanted to lose weight, but everybody was using it to stay study. up all night yeah. to study. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was just having a good time.
1: Well, something changed.
2: Uh, yeah. So at some point, you're, you're you know, st- I was studying business. You still are, right? You're, yeah, you're studying business studying with this business. Um, false promise. Uh, then I had a girlfriend, uh, Penny Boland's from Opelousas, and she was much kind of straighter. You know, I was in love with her, and uh, thought we would probably get married. But I was not. I wasn't towing the line well enough uh-huh. for her. You know, she she wanted an upright guy that a was more really did right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I tried to clean up. I ended. I think I ended up graduating with like a, a B plus average or something like that. So it's on the dean's list. And yeah, stuff. you come a long way then. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but then we we broke up because um, you know it, she didn't think you know she she could see that I was trying but it wasn't going to work, <laughs> which is okay. You know. Yeah. So that that's the that was the summer of I would say probably summer of '69, um, and that was also when you know all the shoes we taken off. Your hair was being yeah. grown long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smoking pot. Yeah, everything was happening. So I, d- I was no longer worried about Penny Bowdens. So I had other things on my mind.
1: So when you graduated from LSU, wh- what did you do? I actually don't know this. So
2: um, the my, I guess it was my junior year in uh, at LSU that the first military draft uh, was started, and. They put everyone's. Uh, put birthdays yeah. in a bowl, yeah. and drew them out. And I was number twelve, so I was headed for yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. <clears throat> so, my father knew someone who knew someone who knew someone, and so I had a meeting with the governor, and he helped me get into uh, the National Guard. So,
1: oh, you went in the National Guard. The National Guard so for how how many years?
2: Well, the National Guard you do six months in the regular army and basic training. And then every weekend for like five
1: years or something. Okay, so you did your, you, you went to boot camp. You did all that. Yeah. And then you were in the guard right. while you, I don't know, worked. Uh,
2: well, af- after after boot camp, I came back and did a master's in marketing.
1: You did in yeah. marketing. Yeah. Okay. Is this you're you're working with, um, Rob Thompson? Is that right? Bob Thompson. Bob Thompson. Well, Robert, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and I, you had taken some sort of class. Almost by accident, right? I took
2: his class by accident because yeah. it was called Learning and Motivation. I thought that was relevant to you know, to you psychology. You and, you and Penny here. actually, yeah. And, uh, and this guy was studying rat brains and memory and making lesions in the brain. Well, I didn't know you could do that, <laughs> and I just kind of fell in love with it. And so I said, "This is what I want to do." And he, you know, wrote letters for me. I got in at Stony Brook and nowhere else. But I had uh, I studied my butt off to to. Uh, Get in using the. Uh, I said, well, if I can do well on the psychology GRE exam, maybe they'll let me in. At so, Stony Brook? well, I, Where, I applied to ever twelve places, and okay. Stony Brook's the only one
1: that accepted me. But him. so when you when you meet him and he he's he's doing this work on rats, did you think, well, all right, the rest of it, forget it. I actually want to do research. Yeah. Well, well why why did that? Have you thought about that? Like why that click happened so well, fast? Well, I really
2: didn't like marketing. It was definitely not cool at the time. Yeah. Right? No hippie wanted to be involved in marketing research. Yeah, um, I had written to B. F. Skinner about uh, trying to use some of his ideas in the pursuit of consumer protection, but he kind of misunderstood what I wrote and wrote back a nice letter saying, "Well, you know, I just I don't feel my work should be used to make people buy stuff, mm. which is not what I wanted. Right? But, you know, whatever. But I was so happy to get this letter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah." Um, so you know I was just uh I just didn't like what I was doing. Um, I had a my we had a kind of uh, friend who was older and kind of the guru of our little hippie group, uh, and he was studying philosophy and um, you know had all these wise ideas and we were smoking pot and really enjoying the really wise ideas. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was, you know, I just kept trying to impress him by studying
1: psychology. You know, I
2: think that's what it was all about.
1: So that is, that is like, you know, the wise ideas, the deep thinking, psychology, rat brains, that is all the brain and how it works and yeah. what it's capable of doing. So something about that t- turned you on. Yes, you, absolutely. You like that idea.
2: I I just love the possibility of uh, being able to actually study the brain.
1: It just was fascinating. Huh. So you you get this master? Did you? Pu- I think you published a paper too. Before yeah, we you...
2: published several papers together. Um, uh, you know, I, I was basically you know very low level assistant. Yeah. So he had no real reason to put me on the papers except kindness. So. Yeah.
1: So that helped. So you you apply? I mean, I, I don't know. Joe, were you applying to like? I'm going to try Harvard and also try. No, Sony, or
2: no? I was more realistic, uh, kind of, you know, some southern schools and, and University of Tennessee, University of Florida. Yeah, um, I maybe British Columbia because it was everybody wanted to go to British Columbia <laughs> at that time. Anyway, so I applied there, but the only place I got in it was at Stony Brook because Thompson knew someone there, you know, mm. and
1: so that that paved the way. All right, so you you also <clears> have to tell your parents that you're not going to run the butcher shop. And you're yeah, not they they even. saw the they writing knew. on the wall. It was fine. Yeah. yeah, had you ever been to New York State, even? No. Hmm. Hmm. So that's kind of a big change. You didn't mind? No, I was.
2: I, did, you know, I had this fascination with New York from watching all the old noir, you know, crime movies and hmm. stuff. And I felt, and also I had a cousin that lived either in the Bronx or Brooklyn. I forget where. Oh, you did. Um, I never. I did call him once when I got here, but he was not very. Uh, yeah, you know, he wasn't. Didn't say, "Oh, great." He cousin. wasn't like, "Come on <laughs> in, yeah." yeah. Did said, you, okay, yeah,
1: good. Glad you're here. Whatever. You never met him. No. Mm. The person that Bob Thompson knew at uh, Stony Brook. Did you work under that person for your PhD? No, that
2: person um, hooked me up with someone else, and it was not what I wanted to do. It. I didn't go to to New York to study marmoset play behavior. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I went. I wanted to study the brain. Yeah. And so I had a friend. Who I just, you know, a graduate school friend that I uh, just met the first couple of weeks, who was working with a guy named Mike Gazaniga on split brain uh, research. He For was epilepsy. actually doing split brain pigeons, this guy. And so I said, wow, that sounds cool. Can you introduce me to him? He said, sure. So he introduced me to Mike. Um, Mike was a pretty conservative guy, had long hair. He said he didn't
1: like the way I looked, but uh, he would let me work at his lab. He had long hair? No. I'm oh, you <laughs> had long hair. He took one look at you and said yeah. he didn't like it. Yeah, but you guys had a long working relationship. You won him over, I guess.
2: Yeah, no, It's um, it, what happened was he said, okay, write me a proposal. So I went back to my room, wrote a you know, two-page proposal about what I might do on split brain monkeys in this case. Which was what? Um, I was going to study... You know, most of the split-brain research had involved communication of sensory information in the back of the brain. Uh-huh. But I was kind of interested in the prefrontal cortex and how higher thoughts might be transmitted between the, you know, the prefrontal cortex on yeah. the two sides. So we were going to do that in monkeys. Um, <clears throat> and the, um, I, so I wrote this two-page proposal and brought it to him. And he said, oh... You can you write pretty well you want to revise my uh book it's it's due for revision it's like i'm two weeks into graduate school (laughs) yeah right out of business and he says you want to revise my book Uh, the his book was called the um, bisected brain and it's about the split brain work he did at at caltech as a grad student Um, so i kind of made some feeble effort to try and start doing that but right about then. Uh, Mike said, why don't you join me on the the human split-brain work because, you know, it's a kind of rare opportunity and you'd probably get something out of that. So Mm -hmm. that's what we did. He had a new group of patients at uh, uh, Dartmouth that were being operated on and studied up there. So what we did is we took a a little camper trailer and turned it into a, a test lab. We'd drive it up there behind a truck and drive up to people's homes and put them in there, flash some stimuli, and you know, if you flash it to the left visual field, it goes to the right hemisphere, so the left hemisphere can't talk about it. Um, so but no, normally the left hemisphere is where all the talking gets done.
1: Right. That's where language lives, right? Yeah.
2: So, you know, we did a bunch of experiments, one of which uh, ended up being, you know, one of the things that Mike always talked about when he, uh, after I left. and. You know it was the beginning of a kind of new approach, uh, where in the past, we you know people were asking, you know, basically, what happens when you split the brain? But here we were asking a different kind of question: What does it mean for us? And so instead of rewriting the bisected brain, we ended up writing a book called "The Integrated Mind," mm. based on uh, my dissertation work and the other studies that we were doing at the time. So it was, um, uh, the the basic idea was that the split brain is interesting in and of itself, but it can tell us stuff about what, about how our minds work as well.
1: Exactly, right. You, so you, I don't know where this happened, like where this came in your timeline, but you did this rat study, um, and you're just gonna have to kind of explain to me, you had conditioned these rats to, you, I think you'd play them a sound, and then get, they'd get a shock, yeah. and they'd been fear conditioned in this way, and you then, I think, maybe split their brain, um, played the sound, but they'd been rendered functionally deaf, so they couldn't hear the sound, but they still had a fear response.
2: Okay, not quite right. Yeah, so, t- take me through that. Okay, but let me wrap up the, the human split brain, because yeah. then it'll make the right thing make sense. Okay. So we had this one experiment where we presented two stimuli simultaneously. The left side stimulus, in other words, left side of space goes to the right hemisphere. right side of space goes to the left hemisphere, as long as you're staring at a dot. So the right side picture going to the left hemisphere was a chicken claw. The left side picture going to the right hemisphere was a snow scene. Mm -hmm. So the two hands go out. The left hand points to a shovel. The right hand points to a chicken. You say, why'd you do that? The left hemisphere says, well, I saw a chicken colossal pointed to the chicken, and you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. So the shovel was pointed to by the left-hand right hemisphere because the right hemisphere saw a snow scene. But the person that's talking to you, the left hemisphere, made a story up to make the chicken and the shovel go together. Yeah. So that you know what we would do is we'd do all these studies quickly during the day, because these guys were living you know, in Vermont or wherever, and we'd have the, the camper trailer there. And then we'd go back to the uh, bar at night and have a few whiskeys and discuss Talk the about events right. of the day. Yeah. And so there was this, uh, we had this discussion about um, what this meant. And, you know, I, I, I was very naive in, in, all, in all of this at that time, and uh, Mike really probably had most of the ideas, although he credits me for some of the big ones. <laughs> but yeah, that's very generous of him because I didn't know what I was doing most of the time. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yeah, so the idea that we, in our conversation that emerged was that this is what something we do all the time, that we behave and then we interpret and build that into the, the scheme of, of uh, of psychology that's going on in your head at, at the moment. Um, that the basic point was that you know if you see yourself behaving in a way that you didn't control, then that is a source of discordance or cognitive dissonance, and you need to correct that in some way. And the way you correct it is by re-narrating why you did what you did. Right. So if you're you know you're in a tense moment with your partner and you say something, and you, as soon as it comes out of your mouth, you, you didn't mean to say that, right? You said it. Yeah. And so you either rewrite that as a narrative by saying, I apologize, or you kind of dig in, depending on your mood, and kind of make it go on and yeah. pretend that it was real, you know? yeah. So we So basically, the, the idea was that emotion systems might be the systems in the brain that but most need these kinds of narrative explanations working unconsciously generating behaviors. So I decided I wanted to study emotion systems uh, and that it would be perfectly fine to do that in rats because the rat and the human brain subcortically is pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. So um, I started using the old Pavlovian fear conditioning paradigm, tone plus shock. The rats then freeze, their blood pressure and heart rate go up, uh, and uh, it, the stimulus is very you know, precise responses are very precise as well so you've got a good stimulus a good response and then it's just a matter of connecting the dots in the brain mm-hmm. so eric kandel had <clears throat> tried to study memory in the hippocampus in uh, in animal uh, in mammals uh in the ni- late 1950s after brenda milner discovered patient hm uh, but he felt that the circuitry was too complicated so he went to aplesia invertebrate animals, where there were fewer neurons and you could learn a lot more from uh, from those few neurons. Uh, <clears throat> but I felt with this simple procedure, it might be possible mm-hmm. to do what he did in the in a mammal, which is to trace the sensory information all the way through to the motor response. Right. And fortunately, there were new techniques c- coming along at that point. Uh, Techniques for tracing pathways in the brain. You inject a chemical into one area of the brain, and it's picked up and transported down the axons to the other area, so you could figure out the whole mapping of, of, of circuitry that way. And within, I would say, you know, four or five years, we had some of the basic information down about how information comes into the, the sensory system, gets to the amygdala, uh, and then goes out. We didn't have it all down, but you know, pieces were falling to p- together like that, and it it really was within seven or eight years the whole picture was pretty well known. So the the question you were asking about uh, didn't involve split brain rats, but what we did was, we found that the if we lesion the auditory cortex, uh, that's right. Then, uh, the, so here, we're going to st- uh, we're about to start doing the tracing, the following the stimulus all the way through the brain, and so do we start at the ear? and make the animals deaf, that seemed ridiculous because you know, deaf animals not going to respond. So we started at the auditory cortex, the endpoint of the pathway. Now this makes we more sense. We lesion that right. bilaterally, and the rats still learn. So that was mind-blowing to a lot of people in the field because everyone thought you needed to process information in the cortex for it to be meaningful. But here we were just sending it directly, we were showing that it would go directly uh, it could it could be done without the cortex. Yeah. And where was it being done? Well, we injected the tracer into the auditory thalamus, which is the way station to the cortex. And, of course, the tracer went to the auditory cortex, but it also went to the amygdala and to some areas of the hypothalamus and other areas, So, and, and the caudate nucleus. We lesioned all the areas that we found connections to, and the only one that had an effect was the amygdala. So, you know, now we had a sensory input to the amygdala. And that got the attention of uh, a lot of people. The, the psychoanalysts loved it, because it meant you kind of were having an unconscious kind of control of behavior. Um, uh, uh, Dan Goleman, um, who famously wrote uh, uh, Emotional Intelligence, um, based on the work I was doing, basically, but really based on the article he wrote in 1989, um, for the New York Times, beginning of the Science Times. Um, he wrote an article called, Brains Design Emerges as Key to Understanding Emotion. And it was all about this subcortical pathway to the amygdala. And that became his whole amygdala uh, hijack model in, in emotional intelligence. Um, so I like to say that, you know, I think that if he hadn't written about my work, I wouldn't have gotten as far as I did, hmm. and he wouldn't have gotten as far as he did. With that. Yeah. So, so it was a good kind of. You it know, some people said, "Oh, he kind of ripped you off in the book." Yeah. No, he didn't rip me off. It was all published information. Yeah, yeah. But he really, really helped. <clears throat> so I wrote my book, *The Emotional Brain*, in 1996, and that kind of uh, uh, put me on on a different kind of uh, scale because it wasn't that cool to be writing books for lay people at that time. You had people like. Uh, um Steven Pinker that we're getting away with it, Daniel Dennett, Mike Gazzaniga. Um but I was still relatively young. I was a, a full professor then at NYU.
1: Right. So you you by then so just to, you had gone from SUNY Stony Brook, you had followed Gazzaniga to Cornell. Yeah.
2: That's right. And Actually, then... I was hired at Cornell before Mike. Oh, I didn't know that. But, okay. Uh mm-hmm. by Fred Plum who was the uh most uh famous neurologist in in the world at that point. He was neurologist to the Shah of Iran. Maybe that makes him the most infamous (laughs) neurologist. But but anyway. (laughs) um, But he was a very scary guy. And every morning, you'd have to go to morning report where the residents would show up. And I was his postdoc, so I had to show up. And there was not a day that would go by where the, the resident who spoke at that meeting left in tears. The guy was
1: really tough. I mean, every day he'd shout at someone until they cried? They'd just, like,
2: tear them apart with their presentations, trying to toughen mm. them up. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so... That's fun. Yeah. But so, um, at the same time, roughly at the same time, right after I had uh, received the offer from Fred Plum and written an NIH postdoc grant, so we're, uh, Plum decided to hire Mike.
1: Oh, okay. To, okay. Um, so, okay. so And then, so you're an associate professor at Cornell? Uh,
2: at that point, I was a postdoc.
1: A oh, postdoc. Okay. Yeah.
2: And then. Then I stayed there for 10 years, went through the whole uh, rigmarole. My first grant was in 1985 when mm-hmm. I was still uh,
1: maybe a postdoc or something like that. But you just said an interesting thing that Pinker was like he was getting away with writing books back then for the lay people. What, what, what did you mean by that? Meaning that no one read science books back then? or
2: It wasn't that scientists, your colleagues didn't like it. That you were writing, it was it was viewed as cheesy or sleazy or something
1: below an academic. Right, almost. it was not
2: it was not worthy of an academic to do that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I'm over, I'm exaggerating a little bit because there just weren't many people doing it.
1: You, so you, you end up. This is your fourth book that's out now, uh, or your fifth book. Fifth. I, I want to ask this because you you just were talking about the amygdala, and I heard you on something else, and you were saying like you, so you had shown that fear is processed through the amygdala, mm-hmm. right? And the media seemed to take it as fear was created in the amygdala.
2: Well, fear the experience, yes.
1: Yeah, and, and it's almost like you've been trying to reset that right. narrative ever since.
2: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, again, I, was, I felt kind of imposterish through a lot of this work um, because I had no scientific background. I mean, even in graduate school, there were no courses. Um, it was just on-the-job training stuff. Mm-hmm and then when i went to cornell and the neurobiology lab run by don reese they had all these tools so i'd spent a year learning anatomy a year learning physiology they're learning molecular biology and so i learned everything in the process of doing an experiment um, so that uh that gave me kind of an edge but i didn't have all the the background that other people did yeah. I, no math I had no math yeah. training at all yeah um and so it was it was um uh, and, you know, everybody says they feel somewhat of a, like an imposter in their field, but I really do feel I had a reason to feel that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, So th- I didn't want to rock the boat too much, but I just felt I had to do what I had to do. But I also needed to get out the message that from the split brain work that, you know, consciousness is an interpretation of a situation, a, a, you know, a way to make the mind feel like, make you feel like you are a unitary entity, that um, you're not like a a bunch of things happening all the time, but that you are in charge of what you do. So that was the thing I wanted to get across, the whole idea of the uh, amygdala being a fear center. I talked about it as an implicit, unconscious fear processor, Um, but everybody thought of it as just fear. I mean it did it didn't take hold the way it did in memory where you have implicit and explicit memory. I tried the implicit explicit distinction, but nobody wanted to bother with that. It just mm. became fear. Mm. Just that was true of scientists as well as the, the press, so it wasn't one side of it.
1: I mean what what can you do about that? It well like once anytime, the work is out there. Once the
2: meme is, is the once the cat is out of the bag you can't get it back in. The same with the meme. Yep. So I've been really, really working hard since 2012. I wrote a paper called Rethinking the Emotional Brain, saying the amygdala is not a fear center. It's a place in circuits in the brain that detect and respond to danger. These are survival circuits. They are uh, in every animal some, with some kind of uh, circuitry. Uh, that Invertebrates don't have an amygdala, but they have their own survival circuits for, uh, Detecting and responding to danger, acquiring nutrients, um, balancing fluids and ions, uh, thermoregulation, and reproduction. Those are essential survival circuits. And if you
1: look at it, you can trace that all the way back to the beginning of life. There's a, there's two things that I, I want to ask about from your work that I... Um, well, I, I think I kind of understand them. I think I know what you're going to say, but I want to I ask. The first one is you had a quote someplace that your memory... Is only as good as your last memory, ah. and I, I, my understanding of that was that's be, because of the narrative thing that you're just talking about. If I see something, and I recall it five years later, I will have applied a narrative to it, and it may or may not be actually accurate.
2: Okay, that's a very good interpretation, but that's not what the. Okay, the well, take t- 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 take take me through so, it. So, um, we were doing some work uh, in my lab starting in 2000 uh, on something called reconsolidation of memory. Uh, Kareem Nader was a very Wright postdoc who uh, kind of discovered that in my and that kind of or rediscovered it in my lab, and it became a big deal in the field, um, because the conventional view was that when you form a memory, you always go back to that memory; you retrieve the same memory every time. Mm-hmm. But the reconsolidation idea was that every time you take a memory out, you have to restore it in order for it to persist. And when you restore it, you have the opportunity to, you know, verify it or uh-huh. to change it. Uh-huh. Uh, and sometimes it changes in a way that is consistent with the original, but other times it can be uh, it can diverge from the original memory.
1: Okay, so that's almost more like the, the more if I the more often I tell a memory, it changes over time. I oh, yeah. pull it out. I add an element. I put it back. I pull it out.
2: So, there were, when we were doing this, there was a, I found a, this story, and I lost where it came from, but there was a story of this war hero had a hundred city tour. And the first city, it's rather blasé, but by the hundredth city, he's like this gigantic hero who's done all these amazing things that he wasn't doing on day one, you know. So it, it got embellished, it got improved every time he said it. It just changed. Um, and, you know, there are famous examples where people will go to court to testify about yeah. something they uh, witnessed in a crime, and instead they talk about what they read in the newspaper, because that got reconsolidated into the, the actual memory. Hmm. So, I mean, that's why they, you know, they have to be very careful in sequestering
1: yeah. witnesses. And, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, all right, this other thing that uh, I think you've, you've talked about it, and I have this feeling that you get a lot of pushback on this, and it deals with consciousness and animals. And I think particularly people probably push back on, you know, you, you have said that we know that we're conscious for all these reasons, but we cannot, and, and animals might have consciousness, but we cannot prove that they do. They don't have language, so we don't know. Their brain is not the same as ours, etc. And I think people probably feed you anecdotes all the time. My dog did this. My, I saw my cat did this. Uh, this is how I know okay. that they have consciousness. Right. Um, is that accurate? Your, your new book, you have a chapter called something like What Conscious Might Look Like in Animals.
2: Right. Well, you know, so I... I Here's the deal um when i when we started doing the sp- the split brain work in the seventies um, I was thinking of consciousness in terms of working memory because that was the the kind of like the mega concept of of cognition at the time, and so working memory was a place where you could hold information in mind while making these interpretations and so forth that we were talking about um but you know it was it, and a lot of a lot of human experience uh, because we can talk about it we can share it socially and so it's it's a big part of human experience but I got a little too stuck I think on the language component mm-hmm. at the very beginning um, and and on the working memory component and because working memory involves areas of the prefrontal cortex that only primates have like dorsolateral prefrontal cortex um, it it kind of narrowed my vision about how other animals might be conscious. So, but over, you know, I'd say like maybe five or six years ago, um I began to see things slightly different. Uh, I started using a partition of consciousness that Endel Tolving had uh, offered, which was that you have autonoetic consciousness, which is consciousness of yourself, being self-aware, noetic consciousness, which is awareness of uh, factual and conceptual knowledge, Mm -hmm. and uh, a-noetic, which is a little harder to explain, so I'm just going to hold that on the table for a moment and come back to it. So what he did was he proposed that uh, that one of the virtues of his model is that each is associated with a kind of memory. Auto-noetic is associated with episodic memory, your memories of your personal past. Uh, and that's why you can use episodic memory to construct an immediate self-aware situation because you're drawing upon what you are mm-hmm. and what you know about yourself uh, to make that, that, uh, for, to generate that conscious experience. Uh, noetic consciousness, on the other hand, is about uh, factual and conceptual information. So it's based on semantic memory. And because semantic memory depends on areas, uh, because this kind of working memory version of semantic memory being integrated into a concept and used in decision-making behavior depends on working memory and prefrontal cortex, dorsal prefrontal cortex. I couldn't see how other animals could have that kind of awareness. Now, the episodic memory prefrontal uh, connection is that the uh Tolving and others have talked about the uh the importance of the uh, a, of episodic memory as a way of having these autonoetic experiences because you can travel mentally to the past and future. Yeah. So that's a a very special kind of experience that probably only exists in humans. Maybe in great apes. I mean but then we get to the question of how do we know. Right. But certainly in humans all of these things exist certainly in humans. So um, let's go now to the anoetic, because that was the hardest to understand. So anoetic is based on procedural memory. Procedural memory is traditionally thought of as unconscious memory. So how can you have a kind of consciousness based on unconscious memory? That bugged me for, for the longest time. But then I began to understand that what he was talking about was a kind of fringe consciousness. It's. I've had a lot of uh, over the years. I had a lot of disagreements with the neuroscientist Jacques up about emotions and so forth. But he, through through his work, I actually came to understand anoetic better. So, he thought of anoetic consciousness as this this fringe state. Um, so, the, for example, the anoetic state of fear would be something that. Emerges in the amygdala, and so it's it's not quite conscious; it's fringe consciousness. So it's it's hovering there, uh, and he, he described it that way as this kind of practically unconscious conscious state. Um, and so the way to think about it is: you walk into your apartment, and you don't have to say, "This is my apartment." It just do this, you know. You yeah. know it because you've been there so many times. Yeah it's the same with your body. You, you don't have to say, this is my body. Yeah, it's my body. You know what it feels like, because you've lived for however many years you've lived with that body. And so you've acquired, and kind of the, to use a contemporary term, deep learning sense. Mm-hmm. You've learned all that information, and you're constantly learning about it. It's changing and updating. So that is who you are. But if all of a sudden, when you walk into your apartment, you see books are turned over, chairs are like misplaced. You know, it's not things are not right. From there, you you go from a noetic all the way up to noetic, so that you now have a semantic understanding. You know, it's not just like a feeling of wrongness as opposed to rightness, but now you you have content about what's wrong, uh-huh. and because that's wrong, that bumps you up to autonoetic. So because it's you and you're worried about know why this happened what it is that's happened and uh, what how are you going to fix it those three kinds of consciousness i think are really fundamental and if we could understand more about them in the human brain i think we could then extrapolate to other mammals because we've inherited all our stuff from them based on which kinds of circuits they have for example all mammals have medial prefrontal cortex this is a granular, subgranular, however you want to call it, there's no granular layer that typifies the granular prefrontal cortex that's so important for human cognition. Um, so, <coughs> the if uh, let's say that the anoetic kind of consciousness, and I, and I believe there's some evidence for this, is dependent upon this medial prefrontal cortex, default mode network, all kind, all that kind of stuff in the human brain. Mm-hmm. And we know that all mammals have that kind of cortex. So they can have this kind of anoetic consciousness of knowing when things are safe and not safe, in other words, right and not right, uh, who is friendly and who's not friendly, what to eat, what not to eat. Um, because, you know, if you if you start to eat something and you taste it and it's not right, then you stop eating. Um, not necessarily because you, oh, it's bad, you know, but you have this kind of, Feeling of not rightness, and you have to, uh, but they don't have anything to bump it up to, so they have they're stuck in that not rightness and rightness uh, mode of consciousness. Whereas other primates have the conceptual and and semantic knowledge uh, uh, and the kind of working memory that allows them to put all that together into content because there's no content in a noetic, Mm. it's just more of a raw feel kind of thing. But the noetic is content rich. Uh, and then the autonoetic, of course, is content-rich about yourself based on episodic memory. So if we had a better sense of what each of these things does, I mean, we, we could like extrapolate from dorsolateral prefrontal cortex to to monkeys for this kind of noetic consciousness. It would also involve m- interactions with uh, medial temporal lobe memory systems, obviously, because you need that for the uh, the memory of uh, the semantic memory and so forth.
1: So it's it's almost like. You've changed your thinking. And before, I mean, also when I read your earlier work, it wasn't that you were saying animals do not have consciousness. You're saying, I just can't prove that. Right. But now, now what you're saying is it might be possible to prove that they have some level of consciousness. I don't if know
2: if you can prove it, but I think it's, it's... Extrapolate. Extrapolate, because a lot of the work in animal consciousness goes from the point of dead certainty. There's no... It's, it can't be any other way. Yeah. It's just so clear from watching the behavior yeah. that it has to be. And what I'm trying to say is you know, let's be a little humble and say, maybe, you know, because that's pretty good. I mean, yeah. it still allows you to, you know, treat animals in the proper way and to have animal welfare if you believe that that kind of uh, if, you know, if we can make those kinds of extrapolations.
1: But at least it's based on something. Um, two quick things and then, then uh, I'll let you go. First one. So you, you've closed your lab at NYU. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself in retirement?
2: No. Um, I closed my lab because... Um, I thought, you know, I'd basically done what I... Wanted to do. I don't know. I've I've done what I... I I couldn't see what else I could do at this point um, because it's it's such a challenge to raise money. uh, And I thought it was a a good time. You know, I was kind of... I still have a couple of grants that I'm just winding down. Uh, I thought it was a good time to just say, okay, let's just shut that down. Because I'm really... You know, the truth is... Over the last few years, i've gotten much more interested in the big picture conceptual mm-hmm. issues of, mm-hmm. of neuroscience uh, than in the minutia of data and there 's nothing wrong. we need data I'm not like criticizing that yep. at all it's just that at some point in your life you move to a different set of concerns and i you know I've been at this for fifty years, and I think I have a perspective that I can offer you know maybe not everybody will like it, but maybe some people will <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. it and, um you know because it's it, i think it's useful to have these big picture things to evaluate you can reject it if you want but at least there's a, some kind of synthesis yeah um so that's what the you know the, my new book the, the four, uh, the four realms, realms of existence yeah. is about um it it's really about how there are these four ways that we exist i mean you could think about it as different kinds of animals being stuffed into the human brain but i'd like to think about it that way it's that we have inherited a biological realm of existence, uh, and the nervous systems evolved by moving forward components of that biological organism, biological kind of um, uh, organization of the of cells, into a, a system that could rapidly uh, and more efficiently respond to the things that the cell needs to keep to stay alive, or the cell or the cells, multicellular organism, to stay alive. For example cells have visceral and somatic components. The visceral components would be things like metabolism. Mm -hmm. The somatic would be the cell membrane that is negotiating with the outside environment. And nervous systems came along, and the somatic and visceral uh, partition was carried forward into the nervous system. And there's a guy named Bromer who in the 1970s, well, actually in the 50s, first proposed this idea that the, the central and peripheral distinction that we all love so much about the brain, he says, is really secondary. It's not the most fundamental. The most fundamental is visceral and somatic. Within that, you have uh, central and peripheral components. But it's the visceral and somatic that connects us to the biology out of which we evolved, and allows the nervous system to have components that are visceral and somatic. I'm, you know. It, I had made a, um, a diagram in my book, my latest book, of the condi- fear conditioning, what I now call threat conditioning circuitry, where you have the amygdala c- getting inputs. And then I had a, a, a path, set of pathways going out of the central amygdala to control uh, physiological uh, responses like heart rate, blood yep. pressure, and so forth, hormone release. And the second path, set of pathways going to control overt behavior. And when I looked at that the other day, I said, well, these are the visceral and somatic pathways. It's so perfectly illustrated by the amygdala outputs like that. Um, so yeah, so you've got the, the, the biological level of existence that is um, completely entwined with the neurobiological, because the neurobiological evolves as a, a kind of variation on the biological. Um, and the, the, biological, sorry, the neurobiological has expanded to allow cognition. Um, so that means that we have a bunch of things that happen in the, the neurobiological that we'll call mere neurobiological. That includes reflexes, uh, fixed action patterns, like in, instincts and so forth, uh, and habitual behaviors. But in the cognitive realm, um, we have those core kinds of behaviors there, but we also have, on top of the mere neurobiological, we have the ability to form internal representations of the world some animals do, Mm -hmm. and those internal representations then um, allow the animal to hold information in mind and make decisions uh, independent of reflexes that are automatically being generated. You know, the uh, one way to think about the difference between mere neurobiological and cognitive is in terms of what's called model-based and model-free kinds of uh, behavior. Model-free behaviors or stimulus response, stimulus bound, model-based behaviors require these mental models. So when you have a mental model that allows a much more efficient use of your uh, energy and resources to solve your problems. So the um, next realm of course is the conscious and in the book what I do is I propose that the, all of the information in the world that we process all of that is being packaged in, uh, uh, in circuits that are processing simultaneously, and those things are the raw materials out of which a complex conscious experience emerges. So, uh, if you have a, you could have a conscious experience about looking at an apple a picture of an apple on a screen mm-hmm. um, that has no emotional content. But you could also have a conscious experience using the same circuitry about um, looking at a picture of, you know, some awful uh, war scene where something really bad has happened. Yeah. It's the same circuitry, in whether it's purely cognitive or an emotional scene, but it's just got, it involves more inputs when it's an emotional scene that is going to work you up.
1: Uh, I also want to ask, Did you do, are you releasing any music for this book? you did that in
2: uh, no I didn't I uh, didn't get around to I couldn't figure out how to like make it hang music together. for the four realms of existence yeah I did for anxious yeah I got a lot of music coming up but you
1: true. do well, I was going to ask you, right? how, 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 you, you, your band is still alive and going
2: <laughs> the amygdala are kind of a um, an idea at this point um, the the lost members player had some uh-huh. hearing problems uh, and we hardly ever play uh live and sometimes I throw together, you know, a kind of fake Amygdaloids band for special events like uh, I was in uh, Leuven Mm -hmm. in uh, Belgium and they put together a band, an Amygdaloids band for me to play some songs with and they did that in in, uh, Germany as well. But mostly what happens is I'll be invited to a lecture and often this happens in Europe more so than here. And they'll ask me if I can bring the amygdaloids. I say no, but I'll bring Colin, and Colin's my duo partner, where we play all the amygdaloids heavy metal songs, uh, but on acoustic guitar. Mm. And we've been to Rome, Mexico City. Uh, we're just in Stockholm at the Karolinska Institute, uh, playing in the hallways, and in classrooms, and in pubs, and um, so it's it's been a great. Thing uh, to be able to integrate my music uh, and your with science. my work, yeah, my work with my music. As do I you? Agree. So
1: you have one, two, three, four, five of those, I those cases. Um, five. So I think there might be some guitars in some of those cases. So you have five, six, seven, eight guitars or something. Do, I mean, do you just get up and play in the morning because you enjoy it? How, how often? Well, I, I usually
2: write in the morning, then I work on music in the afternoon. God, that's a good. You're cutting into my music time. <laughs> yeah, I better get out of here. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, Listen, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. For, thank you very much. Been fun for me too. I've been to Louisiana a handful of times, mostly New Orleans. But somehow that story he told about a musician pulling out a gun and blasting away at his guitar made me want to visit it again. And I'm not even sure why it made me feel that way. It uh, it just did. Anyway, great interview. Thank you, Joe, for having me into your recording room and for being a guest on Synaptic. I should say, too, that a version of the Amygdaloids played at the Society for Neuroscience meeting in Washington, D.C. this year, and they still sounded pretty good to me. Okay, this episode will be archived on thetransmitter.org, where we also have a transcript, and the show can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, YouTube, Spotify, and whatever app you can subscribe there. If you enjoyed this and feel inclined to rate our podcast, please do so, as it helps others find the show. If you'd like to comment on this show, or whatever we do at The Transmitter, you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is at underscore the transmitter. Some of the history on St. Edmund was taken from the school's website. Our theme song was written and performed by Chris Collinwood. The next Synaptic episode will be out on February 1st. That is it. This one is over, and I'll let the music play us out. Ending.